0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Raocio, one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, we have Stephen Whiteman, who is Senior Lecturer in the Art and Architecture of China at the Courtauld Institute of Art, University of London. Stephen Whiteman is here to talk about his new book, Where Dragon Veins Meet, the Kangxi Emperor and His Estate at Ruhe, published in 2020 by University of Washington Press. Stephen Whiteman's book explores the world of Qing imperial power as a medium for ideological expression. The book centers on a summer palace that was constructed in 1702 by the second emperor of the Qing dynasty to support his annual tours north among the court's inner Mongolian allies. Known as the Mountain Est- Estate, sorry, known as the mountain estate to escape the heat, or in Chinese, It was strategically located at the node of mountain veins, through which the Qing Empire's geomantic energy was said to flow. Where dragon veins meet, explores this time in early modern global history to illustrate the importance of landscape as a medium for ideological expression during the early Qing dynasty. Through this mountain estate, Bishu Shanzhuang, to look at early modern world history more broadly. Stephen Whiteman's examinations of paintings, prints, historical maps, newly created and newly created maps informed by GIS-based research and personal accounts reveal the significance of geographic space and its representation in the negotiation of Qing imperial ideology providing readers with the first monograph in any language to focus solely on the art and architecture of the Kangxi court, where Dragon Vein's meet, illuminates the court's production and deployment of landscape as a reflection of contemporary concerns and offers new insight into the sources and forms of Qing power through material expressions. Stephen, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Suvi. It's great to be here.
1: I'd like to begin... Um, today's episode by asking you a bit about your background and how you grew to be interested in Chinese art and architectural history.
2: Well, for me, it dates way back to uh, high school, actually, when I chose to take Chinese as my assigned language because I was getting a very hard time from my French PhD mother about my bad accent. And so I decided I'd take a language that she couldn't um, correct anymore. But then I uh, traveled to China um, between high school and college, high school and university. Uh, and quite coincidentally, on that very first trip, took a side trip to Bishu Shanzhuang uh, to Chengde. Um, and then sort of many years passed. I went to university where I majored in art history, Chinese art history, and on to graduate school, and um, and sort of found myself uh, working on Bishu Shanzhuang quite by accident. At the time when I was in graduate school uh, at Stanford, there was a group of us who were all working on the Qing court, which now 15 years ago was a fairly unusual topic, um, at least in American art history. Uh, And so there was a whole cluster of us working on it, and I found myself working particularly on on Kangxi and Bishu Shanzhuang. At the time, it was also a period, sort of post 9-11 in America um, and a period in which I was concerned about the sort of state of politics in America, as one might now really understand. And so I think for me, Bisha also was compelling because I was very interested in, I became very interested in the relationship between landscape and space and sort of ideological performance of states. Uh, and of which I saw happening in contemporary America, but also sort of very clearly being being worked out in the early Qing.
1: Wow, it's really fascinating that that kind of requires a whole book on its own, <laughs> seeing those kind of parallels, because um, obviously where dragon veins meet is a very in-depth historical approach to studying this region. And um, that's really, really fascinating to hear um, the kind of the background, what brought you to to, to the material and writing um, such an engaging book as Dragon Veins Meet is. Um, could you tell us but could you before we move forward into the contents of your chapters perhaps uh we could stay on the introduction and you could tell our listeners a bit more about um what is bishu Shandrong, um you know as as a kind of a site and also um what does it mean to historicize early qing landscape as you've done um in your book where dragon veins
2: sure so so bishu Shandong, or the mountain estate to escape the heat is a uh, imperial park that was constructed by first by the Kangxi Emperor, who reigned in the late 17th and early 18th century, and then radically expanded by his uh, grandson Qianlong, um, who reigned from the 1730s to the 1790s. And it wasn't so much expanded physically in terms of its extent. It's a it's a walled estate or garden of about 1400 acres which is roughly half again as large as Central Park in New York uh, to give some people some uh, a reference point Um, but it was radically expanded in terms of its architecture and particularly its attention to uh, Inner asian Buddhism under Qianlong Um, and under Kangxi and Qianlong the court particularly the court would retreat to Bishu would retreat from both the heat of Beijing and also the summer disease of Beijing uh, to the relatively cooler climes of Inner Mongolia each year for anywhere from three to five months. And during that time, they would uh, engage with, as you mentioned in your introduction, Inner Mongolian allies, uh, they would hold hunts and banquets. They would give gifts. Uh, officials from around the empire would travel um, to meet with the emperor, as well as leaders of, of Inner Mongolian uh, and eventually Outer Mongolian groups um, coming to meet with the emperor uh, in Chengde. Um, the idea of historicizing Bishu Sanjong is, is in a sense really central to the book. And what I mean by that was that, as you mentioned, the book focuses on a very, very small period of time. Um, it really focuses on, you know, 1702 to 1715, and very, very heavily on sort of 1708 to 1712. Um, it's sort of a micro history of this site in its earliest stage of development under the Kangxi Emperor. And the reason it is that is because uh, earlier studies of Bishu Zhuang had tended to blur the lines between different chronological periods of the site. It had te- they had tended to focus substantially on the site's, what we might call the site's completed state under Qianlong, but really it's not so much as completed, but its most expansive state under Qianlong, um, with the result that any sense of sort of chronological change at the site was lost. Um, and of course, this is a really big issue in garden landscape studies generally, because as we all know from the gardens and parks around us, landscapes are constantly changing just naturally, let alone when they involve heavily, heavy human intervention. And I came to see this sort of blurring or this taking of, of Qianlong as standing in for both the high Qing, the 18th century under the Qing, and the Qing as a whole, uh, I came to see that as, um, in some ways, endemic to aspects of Qing studies as a whole. That not so much that people were blurring lines between Chenlong, but that the overwhelming focus of Qing studies, uh, at least during the High Qing had been on Chenlong. And there's a very good reason for that, which is that Chenlong, uh, the, the archive is just so much greater for Chenlong than any other pre 19th century emperor. But nevertheless, it created this sense that Kangxi, this sort of teleological sense for me, that Kangxi was just sort of preface to Chenlong, as opposed to Kangxi, Chenlong following Kangxi, if you see what I mean. And so I became really interested in the problem of trying to reconstruct the site under Kangxi and indeed to sort of pull Kangxi art out from the shadow of Chenlong, so to speak, um, and really look at it in a focused way, something that had all sorts of sort of mythological and historiographic knock-ons, so to speak, Um, but to really try to create a view of this site and of the Kangxi period on its own terms.
1: Yeah, and you definitely do accomplish it. I mean, accomplish, accomplish in that. Because each of the chapter really does delve into very much um, the Kong, the Kongshis, this, this, this estate being under the kind of Kongshis emperor's uh, reign. Um, moving into part one titled Recovering the Kongxi Landscape, um, you really draw more into this notion of, as you just mentioned, the changing landscape. And I thought it was really fantastic how you're able to really document the phases of development of this um, Park Palace and its surrounding landscape. And especially what I found especially interesting was how much um, material you have um, and just how how kind of important it was to create a water-oriented infrastructure um, across the Park Palace um, territory. Um, So... But perhaps you could tell us a bit more about um, what these stages of development were and what kind of world um, the mar- the mountain estate was was forming.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, it's funny that you say that there seems like there's so much material because to me, the the part one, the you know, the first chapter or two are a reflection of how little material there is in this period. I had made, you know, as I was just saying, I'd made this sort of conscious decision to um, try to focus on Kangxi. And what that meant was I'd also decided that Qianlong era and later um, sources on Bishu Shandhuang, things like gazetteers of Chengdu and Rohe were not necessarily out of bounds, but had to be treated very skeptically as secondary sources in a sense that might have a sort of skewed vision of the earlier Kangxi period. And so I took Primarily, the goal that I would really rely on trying to um, extract as much as I could from from Kangxi sources, and so what I did in this in this first section um, was tried to build a stratigraphy or sort of reconstruct a stratigraphy of the earliest development um, in uh, at the mountain estate, and a lot of the buildings had sort of. Uh, in in contemporary sources, I mean, by which I mean not, sorry, not contemporary sources, modern scholarship had um, very ambiguous dates. You know, lots and lots of buildings were assigned as being built in 1704, but without really any evidence for why that was. And so I started to work with the The major visual sources from the Kangxi period, um, a painting by Lung Mei that we'll probably talk more about later, which shows um, the site in a sort of synoptic view, uh, circa 1709, but actually really it's undated, so we didn't know when we started the project what it was going to look like, and also a series of woodblock prints um, from 1712 uh, that several of the chapters later in the book really focus on, as well as a first-hand account by an official, Zhang Yushu from 1708, um, and a few archival documents, including one major document about water uh, at the site, uh, which I can talk about in a second. And what you'll notice is that though we know that construction started in 1703 because of a couple of extant memorials, um, there isn't any more information until 1708. And then again, there's not really more information until uh, 1712 or 1713. And so I concluded that you could really only start to separate it into well strata, stratigraphy in the sort of archaeological sense, but these sort of bands or phases. And I did that really through um, the cons- the building of a of a GIS, a geospatial database, from which I could create maps um, that showed the different strata of the site, with the idea that I would not only be trying to uh, enable mapping of the site based on these other sources, but that I also wanted to enable mapping of the sources, so that I wanted to treat the actual physical site of Bishu Shandong that I was mapping as related to, but slightly different from the site as it was described, for instance, by Zhang Yushu. That he gives these sort of elaborate descriptions of his tours in a in a text recounting them, um, and that that we could understand these as related, but still distinct versions of of Bishu Shanzhong, and that it was possible to map both of them. And then by comparing those maps, um, the, the reconstructed map of the real place and the sort of recounted map of Zhang Yushu's visits, we would be able to infer things about usage, about access, about the orientation of the site. And in the end, these maps became sort of hugely important to me. They were they were sort of newly constructed primary sources, or really secondary sources, but rooted in primary sources. And they were, like Zhang Yushu's account or a painting, also versions of the site that I could read critically. Um, and so as a result, that allowed me to sort of see a lot, to visualize a lot that wasn't wholly evident from my frankly, rather extensive fieldwork. I and mean, I spent a lot of time walking the grounds, um, but when I could see it in a map version, it was possible to see the way clusters of buildings emerged over time, the way they were oriented, what the design intention was and in how they worked, what wasn't there, uh, which was very important, trying to get rid of all the later material. And this allowed a sort of version of, of the much more intimate scale of Kangxi's garden, to emerge. You mentioned, I also didn't res, uh, address the question of, of water. And you see, so you mentioned water, and one of the sections of this first part of the book really focuses on trying to reconstruct the, uh, the hydrology of the site, both the sort of natural hydrology where water happens to drain or happens to be, and also the way in which water was channeled. Uh, both for the lakes that sort of form the heart of the garden, uh, and also in the sort of mountain section where water was channeled down natural and man-made streams or waterfalls, etc., uh, to highlight the scenery and to complement the architecture of buildings. And what's really interesting for me about that is is first. Um, the possibility of sort of speculative history, in a certain sense. Um, though, if you go into the mountain section now, you find lots of, uh, of of sort of small gullies where there are, which are lined with stone that were evidently constructed as um, as sort of court water courses and lined with stone to retain the water and help channel the water. Uh, those aren't complete enough to create a complete map. Uh, they don't survive sufficiently to create a complete map of those sites, but they are evidence of human intervention in the water course. The the, the effort to channel water in the mountains. Um, this was coupled with really just one very long and very sort of a, almost amusing. Um, Memorial from shortly after the garden opened, I think I kind of want to say somewhere around 1714 or 1715, in which it was an elaborate report of problems with silt accumulation in the water uh, courses, the water network of the garden. And the problem was that it was silting up all over the place, but the emperor would leave so late in the autumn to return to Beijing in, in October, or early November sometimes, that the winter would come on so fast that the silt would freeze. And then he would return too early in the spring for it to be fully defrosted, fully melted so that they could clean it out. So the problem basically was that the emperor wouldn't stay away long enough for them to, to repair the water system. That sort of amusing uh, calendar problem aside what this indicated to me was the sort of massive extent of the constructed or designed hydrology in the site. They were talking about small reservoirs, um, all sorts of points of egress where the natural drainage of the of the site would fil- be allowed to filter through the outer wall and into the landscape beyond. Um, various points around in front of buildings where there would be a sort of sharp curve to the watercourse that would naturally build up silt. Uh, So again, it was was really a matter of sort of extrapolating from there, saying here is evidence that it existed. Some of these sites I can identify, but some of them are now lost because the names no longer survive and the architecture no longer survives. but it, it's an indication that I ought to sort of work with the architecture, with the landscape um, to try to reimagine or imagine back into being some sense of the hydrology. And so in the section of the book that you're talking about, I, you know, highlight a couple of examples and I sort of walk through how those would have worked and how those interacted with text and experience and architecture together with the sort of natural flow of water, but also a huge amount of it is intended to be sort of indicative to say, here's an example, but there were many more examples that we can't now fully put back together.
1: And do you think you could, Just, just so our listeners get some kind of idea as, as we continue this conversation so that they can kind of visualize the site. Um, perhaps not everyone um, is familiar in this, of this region of China. Do you think you could somehow try to um, describe um, some of these, um, some of these uh, these kind of reimaginings that you were able to compile just so that our listeners, as we continue the conversation, they have something to grab onto?
2: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, 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 if you imagine looking at a map of the site, um, it extends, um, it's sort of roughly uh, rectangular. Um, it's mostly it has a sort of big north-south axis. And from the south, um, when you first enter, there's a large area of man-made lakes uh, and the, in which there are central islands scattered around uh, and palaces sitting on that. And immediately north of the lakes is a large open area uh, called Wanshuyuan, um, or the Garden of 10,000 Trees. Uh, and that was an area that was used for hunting Um, and sort of strolling and experiencing um, something of sort of outdoor riding archery contest, which were all central to Kangxi Emperorship and then later to Qianlong Emperorship. And then, so this is the sort of north-south axis of the site. And uh, then to the west is a whole large area now called the mountain zone, which is basically an area of low but quite steep mountains with lots of rather uh, extreme uh, valleys and gorges in it. And over the course of the 18th century, the court built, uh, Kangxi and Chenlong built, a whole variety of sort of retreats and pleasure quarters and also temples up in this area, usually by you know, organizing a series of sites around the rim of a, of a small valley. And there were several of these scattered uh, through, throughout the mountain region. The water was fed in two ways. In the valley portion, the sort of north-south access, the lakes and Wangshuyen, um, the site sits next to, just west of, a north-south stretch of the so-called Wulia River, which is just a river, sometimes called the Ruhe River, uh, just a river that happens to run through the valley. And as with other Chinese gardens elsewhere, the the water in the central lakes was fed by diverting a portion of that river into the site um, where it trickled down past the Garden of 10,000 Trees, Fed the lakes and then exited back out the southern end of the garden and rejoined the Wulia River uh, somewhere south uh, around where the modern city of Chengde is today. The water in the in the mountain region, it's a little bit less clear how that water was entirely supplied. A certain amount of it would have come from rainwater and um, and springs and also snowmelt, and then it was clearly accumulated in small reservoirs or holding tanks by small i don't mean 10 gallons i mean probably several thousand gallons or liters um but but not huge lakes uh and at least one of those still survives today in the mountains which is the discovery of that uh reservoir that holding tank was right near a pavilion way up in the mountains was one of the first discoveries that sort of led me to realize how important this sort of artificial feeding of water through the site was. Um, And there are natural springs all through the mountains. Only some of them are still running today. Um, So this water there was then probably, in all likelihood, uh, operated on a sort of timed release thing. The emperor would say, well, I'm going to go up to this pavilion. And then while he was there, they would release water and would run down. Um, There wasn't actually a sort of actively flowing river in the mountains at all times.
1: That's so fascinating. Thank you for that. I think it's it's a good way of of moving on to the, the second part um, of your, of your book called Allegories of Empire. And here, if I'm not mistaken in the two chapters, Mountain veins and only here in Rucha, you really delve um, beyond um, this mountain estate to look at kind of um, what you call emperors, the emperor's acts of touring um, that was completed at the time. So you the kind of the cartographies and surveys that were completed um, across the region. Um, as a way to reaffirm control of the region administratively, um, but also to generate knowledge on cosmological um, and geomantic forces of the landscape. Um, perhaps you could tell us a bit more um, in your own <laughs> words, rather than me telling our listeners what the chapters entail. Um, could you tell us a bit more about um, what formed these kind of allegories of the empire?
2: Sure. Um, so the I think that in allegories of empire, the the big ideas are that Ruha in some way was intended, was understood as a or constructed or imagined as a exceptional landscape and one that came to stand in for or was or was understood as trying to represent an ideal Qing uh, empire, and second that the that the landscape was in some sense a portrait of or an extension of um, or an expression of the emperor and Qing emperorship. And so, as you say, one of the major functions, perhaps the major practical function of Bishu Shanzhuang was as a station in uh, annual trips north, annual tours north. The uh, Qing court especially under Kangxi and Qianlong, was an extremely mobile one, as has been documented by others in, in Qing history. Um, one that toured uh, both locally and and much further afield all the time. There is a, there, there in the period of time when Bishu Shanzhong had been built, so the first 15 years of 15 or 20 years of the 18th century, there was at least one year in which the Kangxi emperor spent fewer than 30 days in the year in the Forbidden City. Um, and he spent the rest of the year on tour at the suburban Beijing garden, um, now known as Yunmingyuan, uh, but then called Chongchunyuan, um, at Bishu Shanzhuang and elsewhere. And so the first thing that we have to think about with the with the Qing court, at least of the high 18th century, is we need to, when we think spatially about, about emperorship, we need to, a little bit think away from the Forbidden City and towards these other environments uh, in which the emperor was was from which the emperor is ruling and in which the emperor was performing emperorship. Uh, the um, idea beyond that that the that it in some way represents the Qing relates to the sort of early phase of Qing establishment that we are at under Kangxi. Although Kangxi, uh, the Qing was uh, the Qing conquered Beijing uh, in 1644. It had been established as a as a dynasty a number of years earlier uh, under its founder Huang Taiji. Uh, but its first emperor was the Shunzhi Emperor. Its first formal emperor was the Shunji Emperor in 1644 with the conquest of Beijing. Um, but wars of conquest, so to speak. The wars that uh, in which the the Qing conquered both China proper and its and sort of subdued or brought over its or conquered it some uh, outstanding members of Inner Mongolian uh, groups alliances lasted until the late 1680s or the early 1690s, and so it, to say that the Qing is somehow a stable peaceful. Or, or at least geographically stable uh, entity in 1644 isn't at all true. And so these the issues associated with um, new dynastic establishment, both the military and territorial issues, but also the sort of ideological issues, bringing officials who had been born into or remembered the Ming dynasty uh, into the fold, um, getting the... Mechanisms, the apparatuses of ideological expression, like court art production or court printing press, really up and running in in any sort of volume and complexity. Uh, Those are problems that went well into Kangxi's long reign, and we think of the, or I think of at least the 1690s as the place, as the time. Excuse me, when um, mature. Qing artistic expression and and pictorial expression begins to flourish, really begins to emerge. Um, And so uh, here, Bishu Shanzhuang becomes an expression, an opportunity and a reflection of that type of development. As such, it, it, it takes on this role standing at the border between Inner Asia and Northeast Asia and, and China proper um, as um, a place where uh, the emperor meets with all its, his major constituencies during this period, uh, it becomes a place, um, both in terms of its design and in terms of the emperor's rhetoric, where the distinctions between inner and outer, between um, within the passes and beyond the passes, so to speak, uh, become resolved. And the Qing isn't anymore Manchus and Mongols and Han and or China proper, but rather it becomes the Qing as a as a unified territorial and um, and imperial conception.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I, I feel like I'm listening to you. I feel like I'm traveling, um, not just obviously to to a different space, but a completely different time in history. Um, it's really it's it's. I'm really enjoying listening to all your descriptions. Um, moving on to part three, um, titled Space and Pictoriality, um, you ha- again ha- uh, have two chapters, chapter four and five. And in chapter four, um, titled v- View of Rocha, um, you. Oh, sorry. The, the chapter four is about the painting scroll titled uh, View of Rocha. And um, the chapter elaborately detail um, describes t- um, how not just. Um, what are paintings, but you depict how, how the painting depicts what it depicts. And you conclude the chapter by saying that the painting, this is a quote, uh, the painting style reflected in the view of Ruhe is one of strategic and selective incorporation of new techniques into existing modes of picture making coinciding with, and no doubt contributing to a period in which the court's perceptions of the ideological potential, potential of images was rapidly changing. Maybe you could expand a bit more on this painting scroll, um, or or kind of expand on what, in your words, um, or sorry, it, how how the scroll reflects change and in, in the court at the time, and kind of um, what did what did you learn about the painting scroll view of Ruha?
2: Sure, um, thanks. Yeah, it's always nice to hear your own words read back to you and think oh, <laughs> that, that that sounds about right. Okay. Um, the, so of Roja is a painting by a court painter named Lung Mei, uh, who is actually primarily known for figure painting and paintings of so-called paintings of beautiful women, or Mei Ranhua. Um, but he paints this very, very large uh, hanging scroll of that gives a sort of bird's eye view of the site. And it's undated. Um, it shows the it sort of centers the islands or the lakes and islands that I described earlier in its lower say third, and then the upper two thirds are a combination of mountains, tall mountains, are uh, rising on either side of the painting, and sky together with seals and various other things. Um, and so it 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 shows a sort of impressionistic view. Of the valley and the mountains in the site, in a in a manner that is uh, typical of of early Qing court painting, and that becomes, I think, uh, the sort of foundation for a lot of landscape painting under the Qianlong Emperor later in the century. Um, but it is related to uh, paintings that maybe more familiar to some listeners like the Southern tour scrolls uh, that, were by, that were painted by under the direction of Wang Hui in the early 1790s, or excuse me, 1690s, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And so it sort of is, is a, a monument um, for late Kangxi painting that has not been super well understood. And my feeling about, One reason why it hadn't been super well understood was because most people who had written on it, and there aren't very many people uh, who had written on it, but had focused on the question of when it was produced. Um, And they did that by trying to say that, you know, this building is there, but that building isn't shown, and so therefore it must be here or there. But as I showed in, you know, it must be 1712, or it must be 1706, or it must be whenever. But as I explained in the early discussion of of the opening chapter and the sort of reconstruction of stratigraphy, we don't really have such a firm grasp on the exact dating of any buildings. And certainly I think that um, the type of work that I was trying to do in that first chapter gave us a firmer grasp, if a more conservative grasp, than we in some ways had before. And so and then of course that whole approach can we date this by what it shows um, is dependent on a on a sort of trusting that because aspects of Lung painting are quite realistic, uh, therefore we can trust it to be true which is problematic to say the least even if in the end, I actually would say it probably is to a degree true here. Uh, it, it's a sort of it's, a, it's an assumption that you really want to test very carefully, and so in the first instance, one of the things that I did was I used the GIS that I'd also used in chapter one to essentially map this painting and to figure out when I thought it was uh, painted and my conclusion was that it was painted around 1709 or 1710 and that you could tell that based on the buildings that it did or didn't show and so adopting the methodology of other historians or art historians i said well okay if we're going to do it this way then i think the date is this and i, I and i believe that that data is probably roughly accurate but i also in a sense didn't think that was the most interesting question. It's a it's a quite connoisseurial question. And I can't tell you a good reason why it's super important whether it was painted in 1712 or 1708 um, or 1710. That type of granular detail doesn't radically shift our understanding of Kangxi painting in my view. Um, rather, what I thought was much more interesting was really diving deeply into how it was made, how it was painted, and particularly um, the types, the ways in which it combined a variety of pictorial technologies and and pictorial expectations in the viewer or understandings, what we might call painting traditions, but I want to be very careful about the notion of, of a tradition, but how it combined these different endogenous and exogenous or or from China and from outside inputs into what is a very coherent painting. Because the painting is very obviously organized around what appears to be a sort of central axis that is constructed through what appears to be some sort of linear perspective. And yet it also looks very much like a Monumental Chinese landscape painting, very tall with tall mountains, uh, intended to sort of overawe the viewer. Um, and no one had really gotten into how we should how we should take these parts seriously. And so I became very interested in uh, understanding Lung Mei's position in the court. Lung Mei was the student. The student of a student, uh, he was. He was one. He was the student of a man named Jia Zhen who was also very involved in astronomy uh, in the court. Um, and Long Mei and Bing Zhen, uh, among other painters, were very involved in the court's early experiments with perspective, with linear perspective, which was being taught in the court uh, around the turn of the century by a missionary named G- Giovanni Garadini. Um, who was a follower of an Italian painter, Pozzo, who is famous for a certain type of situated illusionistic perspective. Pozzo would paint these elaborate ceilings in churches. And if you stood in the right place so that the illusion would work, uh, then you looked up and it looked as though you were looking into the sky, that it, it was just really a flat ceiling, but it looked as though it was a very, very deep perspective. And so they were working with this type of situated perspective, constructing paintings that um, that e- sort of encourage the viewer to stand in a particular place to fully experience the spatial illusion of the painting. And yet at the same time, this painting, Lung Mei's painting and other paintings in the court were deeply engaged with and really fundamentally rooted in uh, so-called Chinese pictorial traditions. And so Longmei's painting also looks to uh, a historic genre of palace paintings and paintings of summer retreats uh, out to monumental landscape paintings. Again, these tall uh, paintings that were associated primarily with uh, the court in the 10th and 11th century. So a sort of archaizing move towards the monumental um, that had a variety of different types of auspicious visuality encoded in, in, uh, in Longmei's painting. So he was really drawing on sort of notions of feng shui in the landscape of traditional concepts and uh, associations with sagacity and imperial rule, like the Rui scepter and the Rui shape or the Lingzhi fungus, which is a type of uh, auspicious fungus that supposedly grants longevity. Um, and so he was resolving both of these things in, and also I should say uh, using the, contrary to the sort of perception of a single stable uh, perspectival vantage point, Langmei was in fact also using a very Chinese approach of a mobile vantage point in which the painter's eye or the viewer's eye was actually shifting around a lot to give you a, a different series of views. And so he was sort of creating this amazing combination of of Chinese techniques, genres, styles, color palettes, um, all of these things, and very deftly integrating into it things that the court was learning about European perspective, but not European perspective per se, but rather this sort of very careful and complex adaptation that integrated essentially seamlessly with um, with the pre-existing genre and actually expanded it in certain ways that were productive for for the Qing court. Um, so yeah, I guess that gives a sort of introduction. I don't know what the next thing I was going to say was.
1: Right. I just wanted to point out to our listeners: um, when you buy the book, you can actually. I mean, Stephen Stephen does a fantastic job. At, I mean, I mean, the book itself is just. It's so. Um, it's just eye candy. There's there's just pages of these beautiful paintings, but but Stephen does uh, such a great job at really analyzing and and bringing attention to um, bringing, bringing attention to these kind of trajectories of sight, um, which for somebody like me, who's, who's an anthropologist by training and, and no way kind of has a background in art history or these notions of, of, um, of look at what it means to look at a scroll or a painting. Um, in, in, in Stephen's book, he really does, um, Provide detailed analysis and kind of the paintings themselves itself have these lines and and um, examples of of what it means to be looking at um, looking at these pictures and comparing that then with the kind of European um, landscape paintings at the time.
2: Well, that's very nice of you to say and very gratifying because it it was my hope that the book would do that. I think that you know I owe a lot of that approach to to my to my training. And particularly, I didn't study with an art historian named James Cahill, but I studied with a student of his, uh, Rick Vinegrad. And Cahill was famous for arguing that if anything that we say is in a painting, we ought to be able to show is in a painting. And if I can't explain to you why I'm making this argument from the picture, um, then my argument isn't strong enough yet. And I really was sort of compelled by this desire throughout the book, I think, to, um, to really show where in the landscape these things were. It wasn't enough for me to say, oh, the landscape embodies the empire emperor. I really wanted to be able to articulate how I thought that embodiment worked. And this painting is, not every painting, of course, stands up and, and sort of supports this level of, of formal analysis that I think that was seen here. But by doing that, then I think we can really begin to push back to hope that I could really begin to complicate um, stories of sort of the, the charisma of perspective in the non-European world. The idea that um, that perspective came and people were just sort of either overwhelmed with it or didn't really understand with, stand it and played around with it incompetently and then threw it out. But rather say, no, this was a sort of very deliberate and very complex integration of the local and the foreign. And I'm by no means the first person to sort of um, go into this type of work, uh, a number of my colleagues are doing um, amazing work in this same type of question. Uh, But by pulling it earlier into Kangxi, most discussions have really focused on Shenlong. The hope was really to seek out the the roots of what later in the 18th century became a much more multifaceted, even more complex uh, Qing court style.
1: Yeah, and I think that really comes out in chapter five of your book, Paper Gardens, um, which focuses on the series of the imperial poems that depict scenes of the Park Palace. Um, could you tell our audiences a bit more about what was so relevant about these depictions and kind of to further the conversation um, that we've been having so far?
2: Yeah, of course. And so Paper Gardens focuses primarily on what in what, in a sense is the largest but I suppose, in a sort of strictly historical sense, the least useful source on Bishu Shanzhong in the Kangxi period, which is a book of 30 so called 36 views or 36 scenes of the garden. It highlights the major scenic attractions of the garden according to the Kangxi emperor. And it is constructed, uh, it starts with an introduction. Uh, a, a sort of preface by the emperor that describes the site and his reason for being there, and then it works its way through the the thirty six views um, with a uh, a first an imperial text for each one that describes the site in both prose and poetry, and then an image of the site. And these sort of image pair texts work their way. All the way through the text. And the reason I say that it's, in some ways, for the historian, the least useful is because it's, it's by far the most rhetorical. I mean, it, it expressly is sort of embedded in, um, you know, ideas about, received ideas about landscape. And it took a lot to sort of unpack what precisely um, all of that rhetoric meant. In the case of paper gardens, one of the things that I was really interested in is trying to understand why the images um, looked the way they did, and what we could tell about uh, both court painting and sort of court constructions of landscape, and particularly pictorial constructions of space through uh, those images. The, The book is a woodblock printed book that appeared in both Chinese and Manchu editions that are basically translations of each other. Basically, the Manchu is a translation of the Chinese, um, and that were intended for different audiences. I mean, slightly different gift-receiving audiences. Um, But they were, of course, based on paintings, uh, a set of paintings that hadn't ever really been discussed in the literature and that are now lost. And although they hadn't really been discussed, the, the prints are ascribed to a, uh, sorry, though the paintings haven't ever really been discussed, the prints are ascribed to a pretty minor Kangxi artist named Shen Yu. And people had always said, oh, like they're, they're based on paintings by Shenyu." And something about that never really um, struck me as making sense. When you look at the other Major paintings uh, in late Kangxi period—they're uh, all painted or projects run by very, very famous artists. And then you have this hugely important um, book in in the early 1710s that's being ascribed to someone who basically barely shows up in the in, in the art historical record. And something about that didn't add up to me. And so I be, I, I discovered a archival citation to an album by, uh, of the same theme described as matching the books um, in terms of combining a painting and an imperial and a piece of imperial text uh, by a far more famous painter, a man named Wang Yanqi. And Wang Yanqi was the most important uh, artist in the court and also really more importantly, the most important art theoretician. He was really the person who, took over theorizing what the visual style and the visual production and the visual propaganda of the court would be from about 1705 until his death in 1715. And that became a much more compelling attribution for me. Wang Yanqi was, at the time, perhaps the most famous artist in the empire. he was a very, very senior official. Uh, He was a tutor to the emperor um, and held a variety of other very important uh, official positions, including as an imperial diarist, among other things. Um, He was a very active uh, painter, both outside the court, as well as producing some things inside the court as well. Uh, And that started to be uh, much more compelling for me, this idea that perhaps this image of Bishu Shanzhang was originally articulated, was originally made by Wang Yanchi, and then the translation of it into print was assigned to Shen Yu, um, and then subsequently to the block carvers. But the, the sort of core methodological problem here is how do you prove the authorship or the appearance of a thing that doesn't exist anymore? Uh, this album that is lost, and um, moreover, w- even if you can say, okay, there was an album by Wang Yunchi, uh, and so you know we shouldn't she, we shouldn't pay too much attention to Shenyu. We should think more about Wang Yunchi. The answer is, well, okay, so what? What can we do with that information? What does being by Wang Yunchi um, tell us? And so the goal of the chapter is to try to read a variety of different versions of the of the images, of the 36 scenes, the woodblock prints, but also later copies from the Chenlong court, against each other and against paintings by Wang Yunxi to try to sort out what it most likely would have looked like. And what I conclude, um, and what I hope others find compelling as an argument, is that Contrary to these uh, monochrome or black and white prints that are very neutral, um, though quite beautiful, it's quite possible that, and even quite likely, that the um, that the original Wang Yanchi album was characteristic of his late style, his late so-called Orthodox style, which was quite colorful, um, used color washes in... Uh, very compelling ways to construct texture and space, but that also it was probably understood as an album after old masters. And what that means in the context of early 18th century is that, um, in early 18th century painting, is that uh, people like, Wong, painters like Wang Yunchi and many of his followers, but also people in various associated with various other art historical movements in the 17th and 18th century became very interested in the adaptation and the and the sort of accessing of so-called ancient styles, which really meant some painters from the Tang and Song dynasties, but especially great masters of the Yuan dynasty. Um, and so, and, and it wasn't that they simply copied those paintings. It was the idea was that they sort of internalized the spirit and also some of the technical vocabulary, and then adapted their manners and styles and compositions to express the the essence of the of the ancient of these masters. And so, the idea that this major court work is being used is being expressed through a. a a sort of so-called orthodox or literati manner um, and can significantly, uh, I think, upends our understanding of both court art and literati art, which is to say, I, I don't think that many art historians really believe anymore in the sort of great division between court art and literati art, between the amateur and the professional. I think we now know that that's a really sort of historiographic construction. Um, rather than a real historical occurrence. But nevertheless, the idea that part of the way the court expressed its legitimacy through landscape was not only through the type of um, incorporation of foreign techniques that I talked about with Longmei, but also through the adoption and adaptation of, of literati techniques, especially at a moment when they're trying to bring the literate elite into government service to to establish legitimacy, to establish um, a sort of cooperation, seemed to me to be a sort of important rereading of some of the valences of this painting that hopefully were rooted in how contemporary audiences would have understood the, the pictures when they saw them.
1: Um, just as a side question, um, this isn't something that that relates to what you were just saying or to the to the book itself. But what's the story about these um, imperial poems being lost?
2: Uh, you know that's a, that's a really interesting question. and let me see if I can boil it down to a a logical narrative. so the the Wang Yanqi Chi um, paintings show up in something called the Shubalji, which is the Chenlong era a uh, catalogue of painting and calligraphy in the court. And uh, at risk of getting this wrong, I want it, it definitely shows up in the first edition, the first of three editions of the Shichibati, which I think is the 17th, early 1770s, though I'm sure that someone out there will correct me and I've gotten that slightly wrong. In any case, it provides, whenever precise date it was, it provides a date when we know the Wang Yanqi paintings were in the court still. Um, and it's sometime in the middle of Chenlong's reign. Then, and I haven't done a huge amount of research about, about the sort of steps later on, whether there are any records uh, of seeing the painting in the court later on, but somewhere between the Shuchu and today, they're not in the court or they're not in the Palace Museum anymore, and they're no longer known. Um, so my suspicion had always been given how important these paintings would have been because they were by Wang Yunqi and the fact that other Wang Yunqi paintings for the court, perhaps not all of them, but many of them survive in various collections in in China now. My suspicion had been that they were probably uh, either stolen in the last days of the empire or that they were taken by uh, the last emperor, Pui, um, as part of the package of art that he took when he left Beijing and went to the northeast to first to Tianjin and then to Changchun, a period of time following the the end of the Qing when he partially supported himself by selling works of art from the former imperial collection. and So one day um, a couple years ago, I had tracked down a very unusual a a unique set of the the, uh, of the prints um, that I was just discussing, the thirty-six views, in with a collector in Hong Kong, um, and this set of prints was, is is unique because there is also a a copperplate edition in addition to the woodblocks that I haven't talked about. But there is also a copperplate edition that was made in the court at this time, and it and I do talk about it in the book. And this particular set, unlike every other set of the copper plates, which, was bound, which were bound sort of like woodblock prints, this particular set was bound like a giant Imperial album with a uh, handwritten calligraphy, sort of like the original paintings most likely would have been bound. And I had really, these prints have been reproduced in modern editions, but I had, I had uh, managed to be introduced to the collector and I'd gone to see these prints. And in a, and, and so I asked um, him where he'd gotten it, and he said that he'd gotten it from a, a dealer in Tianjin, or that he'd gotten it from a dealer who. But there was maybe maybe what it was was that there was a note inside the book that said uh, that it had come originally from a dealer in Tianjin from in the nineteen twenties, and the dealer the, the note that described this album also described. An album by Wang Yinqi. And so while we don't know, it seems quite likely that somehow this set was originally the Emperor's set of the copper plates and that they had made the array together with the Wang Yinqi album to a dealer in Tianjin who had then probably broken them up um, and sold them individually as landscape paintings. So I think that's the story of the Wang Yinqi paintings, um, you know, without much solid evidence for it.
1: Part four of your book, um, The Metonymic Landscape, um, it's made up of one chapter titled Touring the Rear Park. And in this chapter, you move closer to the ordering and pairing of these scrolls or or these lost scrolls. Um, Can you tell our listeners a bit more about the relevance that this ordering plays um, and also its relevance in relation to the emperor?
2: Sure. Um, So, One of the puzzles about the thirty-six scenes, this woodblock-printed book by Shen Yu and by Wang Yanchi, was that um, so it shows thirty-six scenes around the garden, but in no really obvious uh, geographic order. When the Qianlong Emperor, a number of years ago, a number of years ago, a number of years later, commissions um, forty scenes of Yuanmingyuan, the garden in Beijing those 40 scenes follow a very clear geographic path. So they actually represent a sort of like walk in the gate and walk around the garden type of tour. But the, but the 36 scenes of Bishu Shandong don't do that. And so I had been trying to parse how they, how they worked, how they were ordered, what they meant. Um, and one of the things that I realized was that they involved a sort of series of experiences that some of them uh, that a series of sort of sensory experiences and that at least parts of them, for instance, the opening part did follow a generally geographic order and that they sort of walked you into the garden and then they showed you a series of scenes where you were looking around Um, you know, so as though you were standing in one place and turning around and looking at the mountains that were all around you. But that only got me so far, and then that explanation ran out. So as I was, and and I should say before I go on, that one major narrative stream, as my colleague Richard Strasberg uh, has shown, uh, was a biographical one, that there was a sort of, the, the text's, sort of describe a sort of series of reflections on the emperor's life, self-reflections on the emperor's life, and, his, and eventually ends with sort of reflections on his mortality. And so that one of the narrative structures of this whole document uh, that's not spatialized, but that is, is in the text, is, is autobiographical. But that still leaves us with trying to figure out the geographic order and how it connects to, um, to the images and what we see. And what I realized with quite by accident while talking about the images uh, with another colleague one day in, in, in my office, uh, I had hung all the images on a board, on a pin board, very, very close together, stuck together because the pin board wasn't big enough. Um, And so it created the sense that they were sort of like a hand scroll when they actually weren't. They're just a series of album leaves. But the colleague looked up and said, oh, isn't that a nice scroll? And I said, oh, what are you talking about? It's just a series of images. And she said, no, look, like they they have sort of continuous elements uh, in them. And as I looked more closely, I realized that, in fact, that was true, that various parts of the... Landscape as depicted in the scenes connected, whether it was in the the shoreline or islands or bridges that met or mountain ranges that stretched in the back, you could I could break these 36 scenes into um, a series of short combinations of scenes, of course, short combined compositions ranging from let's say two to seven scenes long. So they weren't consistent. It wasn't one long hand scroll. It was a series of different little things. And that furthermore, it was possible to understand the geographic or conceptual relationship between these seemingly disparate sites once you had them in those groups. And so for instance, there are two um, sites that are paired together that appear to be not geographically connected but that when you stick them together the streams that that run in front of each site appear in the picture in the combined picture to connect and in fact when in real life there are streams in front of either of the, of both of these structures and they don't connect obviously right there because they're quite far away but when they both flow down to the bottom of the valley they meet and so what the picture was doing was trying was, in a sense, conveying a piece of geographic knowledge that was greater than the than the images, so to speak. Um, and that there are other ones that appear to be sort of uh, in which two scenes connect, but what they really are are two buildings that are essentially looking at one another. And so they're showing as a single landscape the sort of combined, visual experience from each of these two structures and so on and so forth. And you can basically account for every one of the pictures through this type of, of, of construction. What this led to, and you asked about the, the relationship to the emperor was a sort of a real interest in the way that the, the pictures and the texts were uh, inviting a embodied sensory experience with the visualized or represented landscape how did this book invite us past just looking at pictures and into a sort of imagined embodied experience of the site itself one that combined sensory experience the sound of the birds the sound of the water the smell of the flowers the appearance of the light etc cetera, etc cetera, Um, with the sense of walking around and, and and moving through the landscape and also conveying some level of knowledge that suggested a sort of intimate connection with the site you know if you understand that two rivers or two streams meet but way away from the buildings they meet down far the valley that means that you've been in the site enough that you that you know it that it that you that you that you occupy it in some sense, and that of course was not a privilege that was available to most of the recipients of this book. It was rather a privilege that was reflective of the emperor's own knowledge or the emperor and his household's knowledge of the people who to whom the um, site really belonged. And when the Wangyanchi album was made originally, of course, it was just for the emperor. Wang yinchi painted it for the emperor and he would have kept it in a drawer in wherever, in Beijing or wherever it was, and taken it out and revisited the site through this small album that was meant just for him. But the, by reproducing that album in woodblock, the court was extending that both that knowledge of the site that was essentially the emperor's, the experience of the site that was essentially the emperor's, but also the act of viewing that was the emperor's to all the recipients of the book. And as such, I read the book as both conveying a sense of the sort of emperor's own perception and sharing that and allowing people to sort of live in it. It's not that you can go to this book as as, as a recipient and suddenly wildly imagine all your own narratives about this space. Rather, you're having the emperor's own personal perceptions, his own personal sensory experiences and interpretation filtered through the rhetoric of an imperial production. You're having all that shared with you, as well as a sort of intimate viewing experience that is as though the emperor almost figuratively called you over and said, hey, come look at this album with me. And so for me, the album became a very key uh, element in a larger argument about imperial space at Bishu Shantung. You remember earlier, I commented that the Kangxi Emperor in one year spent fewer than 30 days in the Forbidden City and spent the vast majority of the year somewhere else. And part of that was around... Um, around uh, mobility and a sort of construction of Manchu emperorship as one that moved, uh, that was almost semi-nomadic in a sense. Um, But I think another part of that was about a type of emperorship that sought out um, spaces that permitted and staged a form of imperial performance and a form of imperial relationship that was at least relatively more intimate than the sort of architectonic hierarchies of the Forbidden City. The Forbidden City is very strict and, and hierarchical. And these types of spaces allowed a different type of interaction, not one where anybody forgot who the emperor was, of course, but one that allowed the emperor to share activities in a different way that allowed a sort of more informal um, garden experience uh, or garden environment for this type of relationship. And the album was for me the strongest evidence of or one of the strongest pieces of evidence, together with accounts of banquets and various other things, uh, for this alternative environment of emperorship.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's really that that's really fascinating. And it you know, this notion of of of, of, of inviting the viewer to occupy the emperor's point point of view. Um it's it's really interesting, really interesting notion to think about, um, and it kind of it, it leads us closer to the conclusion of your of your book titled "The Landscape of the Emperor." And here you really, I mean, I thought it was a wonderful conclusion because you return to the beginning of the book um, by returning to this hanging scroll, um, the Kangxi reading, and you provide a really fantastic analogy between this portrait, this scroll, and 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 the portraits of the landscape that unfold in your chapters. Um, could you tell us a bit more about these, um, these kind of analogies that you draw on um, and what the portrait, what, why did you conclude with this portrait of, of Kangxi?
2: So early on when I was working on this project as a, as a doctoral student, um, someone introduced me to uh, a text by um, a French historian, Louis Marin, called The Portrait of the King. And the idea that the portrait of the king is the king. Um, it stands in for the king, and I became really interested in this idea of the landscape of the emperor is the emperor, and that, that somehow the the landscape of the estate of the mountain estate and the empire as a whole come to stand in for the emperor um, in a sort of metonymic fashion. That's the title of the last section of the book, and um, so uh, so. Returning to portraiture in that sense was a logical place because I wanted to introduce this idea that we could see a, that that many of the same values that we wanted to or that we understood the emperor as investing in himself around knowledge and authority and and culture and universality could also be seen in the landscape. And so, in the conclusion, uh, you know, as you say, I start with a portrait of the emperor uh, that was produced in the studio of Giovanni Garrardini, uh the the missionary painter uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, but probably by Chinese artists, we think maybe, or Qing, probably better to say Qing artists. Um, but then I return to this uh, series of equations that the emperor makes in his uh, preface to uh, Bishu Xanzhong, his text about Bishu Xanzhong, in which he equates various natural elements with various virtues. Um, You know, he sees irises and thinks of humility. I actually can't remember exactly what he thinks of when he sees irises, but he sees irises and he thinks of an imperial virtue and he sees something else and he thinks of another imperial virtue. And this was a reference to a very, uh, to a six dynasties text um, about written by a prince who had realized that he'd gone astray and needed to sort of recover his imperial virtue uh, and behave properly as a prince. And so one of the things that I was trying to say was that, you know, the 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 landscape is really it's not just Invested with, or it doesn't just reflect imperial virtue. In some sense, here Kangxi is saying these irises are virtue. This, these pines are my virtues. When I go here, I I, I, there's an equation between me and it um, that allows me, or sort of regenerates me in this virtue. He's also connecting himself to a sort of very, very long history of imperial virtue through the landscape, which is a very important part of of the rhetoric of Bishu Shajong as a whole. And then I, to, to, to try to balance that in, in, in rethinking all the themes of the book, I conclude with a, an oil portrait of Kangxi, a portrait um, painted sort of so-called in the European style, oil on board in this case, or a panel, not on canvas or, or silk. Um, but of the Kangxi Emperor also sitting and reading as he is in the, in the Garardini portrait, but very much sitting in a sort of European three quarter style, um, looking out, you know, sort of turned towards the viewer, looking out um, at the viewer. And through looking at these two portraits together, I suggest that they're in a sense probably meant as a pair, um, but that whether they're meant as a pair or not, they are sort of two sides of the same coin thinking about um, different visual vocabularies in which the court was trying to work out and was developing this very complex early modern um, uh, discourse of emperorship, one that certainly was engaged in Europe, but was also very deeply engaged with Chinese history, uh, with inner Asian history, and also with the sort of Multi-ethnic complexity of the contemporary Qing court, which was really Kangxi's great challenge, was how to sort of wrestle all these different parts into a coherent view of emperorship.
1: Yeah, and I think that that kind of um, that the conclusion starts with with a quote from Kangxi. Um, let me go to that so. His quote: "Now there is no differentiation between the center and the periphery," which um, I was really quite that 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 was really interesting to me. Considering this is, I mean, the whole notion of the Chinese cosmological structure around the center and the periphery that's been borrowed from one dynasty to the next, um, and and you, you, your reference to this to this quote by Kangxi, um, I thought was really fascinating.
2: So that that quote comes from a a uh, stele constructed, uh, raised, or erected outside a uh, a temple that was built just next to Bishu Shantung, just the other side of the Wulia River, uh, ostensibly in response to the request from local Mongol groups who asked for a, so says the stele, a temple at which they could celebrate the glories of the emperor. Um, but it says, uh, you know, and it's part of a sort of long Discussion in that style about the Qing mode of emperorship that um, welcomes people from afar—that that, that to, to borrow the title of, of a famous book on Qing history, uh, it cherishes men from afar, uh, but also um, deals with China proper and respects all these different parts. And so here again, this returns to, for me, the idea I talked about in in the earlier section, allegories of empire, of Bishan Zhong as the uh, sort of exceptional uh, representation of the new Qing, of not a Qing of disparate parts, but a Qing in which all these disparate parts are resolved into a new identity, which is Qing, not anything else, and and, and not notably necessarily a continuation of China per se, but rather one that draws on all these different parts for its identity. And so he 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 sort of expresses this idea in a lot of different ways in a number of different texts that now it's no longer pieces; it's one. Now center and periphery have been uh, uh, have merged and become something new. And for me, that quote really um, got right at one of the major ideas about landscape, about this landscape in particular, but about landscape in general and the way in which we can see landscape as connecting ideas across spatial scales from emperor to garden to empire. They, it can be the link that brings these things into, into dialogue or into sort of conceptual relationship with one another.
1: Mm, yeah, that, I think that's that. that really sums up your book quite well because that's what you really um, argue towards in each of your chapters at least that's how I read it Um, I feel like we've really taken up a lot of your time and um, I I wanted to conclude our conversation by moving closer to um, what you're working on and thinking about these days Um, what are your current projects and what have you been doing since where dragon veins meet was published
2: (laughs) Well, so I mean, besides facing the challenges of, of teaching in everyday life that all of us are facing these days, um, in terms of new research, I'm trying to extend outwards from the court and from the Qing period to continue to think about uh, spatial issues in early modern China. Um, the first project I'm working on is a history of cartography, in, particularly in the sort of the last millennium, beginning with the Song, uh, but really focusing on the early modern and modern periods, and thinking about ways in which uh, Chinese, broadly speaking, you know, generically speaking, Chinese uh, statehood and, but also, sort of dissident perspectives, non-state perspectives, were negotiated and expressed through maps from, say, the Ming to the contemporary period. Uh, So that project is just beginning. And the other project that I've been thinking about uh, that is a little bit more distant uh, has to do with thinking spatially about uh, the sea in Chinese imagination, um, about migration um, to Southeast Asia, about uh, areas outside of Beijing and their relationships with the sea, and also just about the pictorial imagination of the sea in early modern China. Chinese art is very focused and rightly so in many respects on mountains and rivers as you know as the sort of core pictorial grist of the of the landscape mill uh, but of course China has a huge coastline and not coincidentally that coastline is of course both culturally productive and also outside of the centers of of culture of Jiangnan culture and Beijing culture, uh Southern culture that we normally focus on. Um, and so it seemed like looking at the seas was a opportunity to sort of flip the script a little bit on how art history had focused in in time on China. So those are my two big projects these days and and we'll see where they go.
1: Well, wow, that sounds really, really fascinating. And um, I and I imagine all of the listeners to this show really look forward to hearing more about... How that unfolds. Um, for everyone who has tuned in to to today's episode, I strongly recommend you go out and buy um, Where Dragons Meet, Dragon Veins Meet, published by University of Washington Press. Not just because um, you can learn more about everything that Stephen has already covered today in more detail, but also just so that you can really pair that with the images and and the very detailed maps that he provides, because it really adds um, a lot more context, and it's a very rich experience. And and um, I Strongly recommend that that um, that people read this book because it's a it's a very important contribution to um, understandings not just of art history but um you know the the ruling power of China Chinese history and maybe even finding parallels to to today's contemporary world. So for now, Stephen, I just wanted to thank you for being part of our show and um, for sharing so much of what you've learned and so much of your knowledge. Um, Thank you so much. And we look forward to um, hearing about your, your upcoming projects.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure and you're very kind. Thanks for having me.